We've been in this series called Wilderness Men, and uh, we've, we've really just been looking at stories in the Bible of men who specifically lived outside for a long period of time. And God often shows up when we are outside. Uh, we were in his creation, and he teaches, and he trains, and he shows himself to us in lots of different ways. And we met the first week, we met Esau. Esau was not a great example of what we should do with our lives, but we learned a lot about legacy that week. You can go back on our podcast and listen to that if you, if you uh, missed it. Last week, we talked about Samson. Samson was a strong dude, but you might remember I said, I don't like that guy. Uh, as I look at his story, I'm like, I'm not sure there's anything in his life that we should emulate, uh, but he's there and we got to deal with it. And what we learned from his story last week, at least, was a lot about what happens when we find our strength in God. Uh, Samson was known for being a very strong man and what it is that we can do differently than Samson did. So these two guys were maybe not great examples of people we should live like. Today's wilderness man is the man. He's awesome. His name is Elijah. If you've never studied or heard about Elijah, man, Elijah just, he is, he's a notch above all, pretty much everybody else in the Bible, maybe history, the things he does. And we're going to talk a little bit about that some as we get into him today. But um, he knew more than anything about the roller coaster of life. Uh, he had some extreme highs. He had some extreme lows. And so that's where we're going today as we look at the life of Elijah. We love to look at the Bible every week for the answers to life's most important questions. So I'd encourage you to grab a Bible if you've got one near you or on your phone. Uh, we got free ones we give away in the lobby. If you don't have a good readable version of the Bible, make sure you grab them before you leave today. They're free to you, no cost. Um, but we're going to be in 1 Kings today in the Old Testament of the Bible. We'll be in 1 Kings 18 and 19 if you want to scroll over or flip over to that passage. Uh, let's talk a little bit about 1 Kings. Uh, 1 Kings is in the Old Testament of the Bible. And it is a history book, probably above all else. And it's a history following the lives of various kings who were kings of the nation of Israel, which is God's kind of chosen nation. And we see how he develops his story and brings Jesus into the world through that nation. And it is following basically one specific facet of the lives of the kings. We're not really interested in their foreign policy. We're not interested in their economy, though some of that stuff's mentioned. We're interested in, are these kings serving God or not? And, and by extension, are they leading the nation of Israel to serve God or not? And that's kind of what first and second, there's two kings, first and second kings. That's kind of what they follow. And as you look through the, the books of the kings, there's other characters who pop in all the time alongside the kings, and they're known as prophets. And the prophets have a very special role in, uh, in the nation, and especially in how God communicates to the kings and the other leaders. Our guy, Elijah, was a prophet. We're going to find him in first kings. Um, thanks to movies and fantasy novels and fairy tales. When you think of a prophet, a lot of times you might think specifically about like a, um, like a psychic, someone who can see the future. They've got maybe, I don't know, a crystal ball or some magical cards or something. And that's maybe when you think prophet, you, you picture, you remember Professor Trelawney from the Harry Potter? If you don't know that whole world, then forget it. The lady's crazy. She got these big old glasses and half the stuff she says is completely wacky. But every now and then she gets something right. And when you think prophet, you might think that. Um, God does use the prophets from the Bible to foretell things. He does, for example, the story of Jesus and him coming into the world. There were all kinds of prophecies made about Jesus. But what you may not realize or really haven't ever thought much about is that that was not the prophet's primary job. The, the prophets were actually more like our, our preachers and pastors of today. Their main job was to stand before the assembly or go to a group of people, especially the leaders, and say, this is what God wants us to do. Uh, let's do it. Prophets weren't always uh, great at doing it themselves. There were some prophets who strayed from God, uh, just like there are pastors and preachers and teachers who strayed from God. But the point was, it wasn't their primary job to tell the future. It was their primary job to come alongside the people of the nation of Israel and say, are you following God? And if you're not, let's return to him. So we meet Elijah in 
1 Kings, and he is a prophet during the reign of a king named Ahab. And when you hear Ahab, I just want you to think, not a good king. I'm going to give you just a picture. If, if you were at 1 Kings uh, 18, you can flip back a couple pages. You, you, you introduce, uh, we get introduced to first, in 1 Kings 16 to Ahab. 1 Kings 16, 29 says, and he, talking about Ahab, he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. So he had a good long reign as a king, Ahab did. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Okay, so on the spectrum of good king, bad king, king honoring God, king not honoring God, Ahab's over here not honoring God. And as an extension, the nation of Israel has fallen from God. It's not good. Ahab was a really bad guy. He had gone far from God. He was evil. And so as we get into 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're actually going to be into chapter 19 as well, there's kind of this, uh, there are these two uh, story arcs that are coming together in Elijah's story here. And I want to tell you about what those two things are before we get into today's story, because they're really important to understand what's going on. And the first one is this, Elijah has been on the run for a long time from King Ahab. He's hiding, and this is why. It actually kind of revolves around King Ahab's wife. Her name is Jezebel. Maybe you've heard someone called a Jezebel. She's based, that, that, that kind of uh, nickname is based after this woman. Um, Jezebel, like many royal weddings, uh, it was a, a sort of a, a political arrangement. Um, it wasn't that they necessarily got married for love. It was that uh, the Israelites lived in a region controlled by a group of nations called the Canaanites or the Phoenicians. And as often happens with foreign policy, especially in these feudal systems with kings, you would marry a, a princess or a dignitary from another nation to kind of help there be some peace. You know that from history class if you stayed awake during history class. And, but we meet Jezebel, and so she is a Phoenician person. And when she moves in to be the wife of Ahab, what does she bring with her? Well, the same thing that, that these blending of the nations always bring. She brings with her some of her culture, specifically her religion. Just like we saw with Samson last week, this uh, kind of pagan religion begins to infiltrate once again the nation of Israel. Uh, as a Phoenician or a Canaanite, she worshiped two main deities, Baal, some people pronounce it Baal, and Asherah. Or Asherah. And these two, Baal and Asherah, they were, they were the top deities. Uh, Baal was kind of a male deity, Asherah was a female deity, and they were controlling. Baal was a, kind of a god of war, and he was kind of like the main god of the Canaanites, and he also controlled agriculture and weather, storms, kind of like that. Think Thor, you know, think Zeus. This is, this is who, um, this, or Odin and Zeus, and this is who you think of when you think of Baal. Then you've got Asherah. She is like a, she's a feminine goddess, and she's a goddess of fertility. It's, you can see why it would be very uh, interesting to a group of people to worship these kind of gods. What do you want? I want power over my enemies. I want uh, good weather and crops. I want fertility so that we can have a big, strong family. And so as Jezebel comes in, she sets up all these temples all over Israel so that people can worship her gods in addition to the God of Israel. And if you know anything about the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of Christians, like one of his main rules is don't worship other gods. That's like the main thing. Okay, I'm the one true God. Everything else is an imposter, a, a demon, or a fake. Those are the other options. And this is, this is God's stance on that. And this is what Je Jezebel brings to the equation. As a result, she has started killing off the prophets of God. One by one by one, hunting them down. Why? She wants her religion to reign supreme. Why is Elijah running from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel? His neck's on the line. She's killing all the prophets. That's the first kind of plot line that's coming to a head here. The second plot line is this. goes right along with the first one. And it is that God has kind of 
answered the, the response of the Israelites here. And he says, okay, if you're going to serve other gods, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cause there to be a drought in the land. And so for like three years, there's been no rain. Now, this is an agricultural society. They rely very much on rain. We got 60 bajillion gallons of rain yesterday, and though you might have complained about it, our farmers, specifically our bellies, are very excited about that rain. And it hasn't rained for like three years. Now, one thing, it's like, well, you know, these people aren't worshiping God anymore, so it kind of makes sense that God would make this thing to kind of teach them a lesson. But I love more than that, the irony of what God's doing here. You want to worship Baal? the God of agriculture and storms and rain? Okay, let's see how that works out for you. Guess who controls the rain? Guess who controls agriculture? He's just setting it up, and it's going to come to a head in this showdown that Elijah is going to facilitate. Okay, so now we get to Elijah's story, our, our wilderness man of the day. First Kings chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 1. God comes to Elijah and tells him to do something. This is in verse one. He says, go, Elijah, present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain to the land. You see in that sentence where those two storylines are coming together, the prophets are being killed off by Ahab and his people. But God's closed up the sky and God says, Elijah, I'm gonna deal with this. Verse two is a sobering verse. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Elijah, from the outset here, turns out to be a super brave dude. Because what is at stake here for Elijah? Everything. His life. But he's not scared. Uh, maybe uh, you've seen a Christian pastor or like an apologist, a Christian person, go head to head with uh, someone who doesn't believe the way they believe, maybe an atheist or an agnostic or just someone who's just a skeptic. And there's like a debate that goes on. And so you can see this maybe coming to a head as Elijah approaches this group of people who aren't worshiping God. But when he shows up, uh, Elijah sets up this meeting and they meet at a, mount, a place called Mount Carmel. And when I was a little kid, I thought it was like caramel, like the candy. And I was like, that sounds like the most magical place on earth. I want to go there. It's not the candy. It's this mountain that he meets at. And when he gets there, guess who else is there in attendance with Ahab? 450 prophets of the false god Baal. And so where Elijah's going to go confront Ahab, he walks in, he's like, man, I'm, I'm outnumbered. <laughs> one to 450. And so if you've seen one of these like debates, it's kind of like that. But it is super not like that. One, there's no rules here. In fact, all the other prophets have got to be, are being killed off. And so they're not really interested in a, a dialogue. But God has just spoken to Elijah. And that gives him some courage. So he goes into this thing and he challenges these 450 prophets of Baal. And he says, all right, check it out. I want to challenge your God to a duel. And we read about it in 1 Kings 18, 23. He says, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. So build an altar to your God, chop up a bull, giant uh, animal, it's huge. And then I will prepare the other bull. And I'll put it on the wood, a separate altar, but I won't set fire to it. So nobody's lighting their altar. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to call in the name of your God. And I will call in the name of my God. And whoever answers by fire, he is God. 450 to one, who seems to have the better odds? Baal, 450. So what do they say? Then all the people said, yeah, what you say is good. So they start to go down. Or they agree to the challenge and the crowd is buzzing and things get going and, Baal, and the, the, Elijah says, you guys go first. 
And so they begin praying and they're dancing and they're calling out and they're singing their songs to Baal and they're uh, crying out to them with all their might. And hour after hour and after hour goes by as they begin to call out to Baal, send down fire, light this altar, show these Israelites that you are God. And the, 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 the tension builds. And so they pull out swords and they begin cutting themselves and they're doing it as a sign of their commitment to Baal. And they're like, look, we're down here, we're worshiping you. And they cry. And I love there's this moment where Elijah is just sitting there and he's watching them and he starts to kind of taunt them a little bit. He's like, hey, you got to sleep? Is he sleeping? Maybe she ring his doorbell. You know, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's busy right now. And he kind of, you know, like talks back to him a little bit. And they keep crying out hour after hour after hour goes by. And the passage says, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And the 450 prophets of Baal eventually give up. They're exhausted. They've given all they can give. And then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah does something cool here. Uh, he has the people come and pour water all over his altar. Gallons and gallons and gallons. So much that he says, look, dig a trench around it. And they continue to pour water on it until the trench itself fills up with water. And he's like, okay, it's my turn. Make some room. And then he does something so simple. He prays. He doesn't yell and jump around and dance. He doesn't have to cut himself with a sword. He doesn't do it for hours. He prays one time, one prayer. And this is what he says in verse 36. We're still in 1 Kings 18. It says, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I, am your servant. And I have done all these things that you commanded me. And answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. I don't know how long there was a pause, but in verse 38, it says, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil. It also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Man, I wish my prayers got answered that quickly. I don't know about you, but I've prayed about stuff before and I'm just like, hello? Like, am I doing it wrong, God? Like, I've got this thing I want to happen and sometimes I wonder if even he's answering, and maybe you've experienced that, and you're like, am I, am I doing this wrong? Am I, is God even listening? I believe in the promises of God that he hears us and that he wants us to call out. I also want to take a step aside and tell you this. There's not really a wrong way to pray. Now, that's a heavy sentence. There probably is a wrong way to pray, like if you're not praying to God, and I don't know. But in general, if you're, if you're doing your best in faith, here's what prayer should be. It's a conversation from your heart to the heart of God with all the faith that you can muster. <laughs> and if all you can do is like, God, if you're out there, you know, that's a pretty good prayer. There are stronger prayers. The strength of your prayer comes with your amount of faith because of maybe what you've experienced from God in the past. But we need to be able to go to God. And I want you to let, I want you, to let you know that like not every prayer gets answered with fire from heaven. <laughs> Most of them don't, fortunately, or there would be a lot of smited houses. But God always gives us what's best. One reason God doesn't answer our prayers the way that we wish he would is because we're praying for something that we don't need. 
And God's like, I'm going to give you what's best. You really want that? Now, what's funny, you read through the Bible, and I, I know this has happened in my life. I think sometimes God's like, that's really what you want? All right. You ever pray for patience? <laughs> Lord, give me patience. No, no, I don't want practice. I want patience. But God gives us what's best. And in this moment, he shows up with fire, and he burns it up. And everybody in the crowd says, the Lord, he is God. Elijah, through his prayer and the power of God, is putting on a workshop, a clinic, on who is most powerful. Uh, now, now, this, for Elijah, was literally, we're talking about the roller coaster. Click, 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 click. This is literally the mountaintop experience. It doesn't get any better than this for a prophet, guys. Like, it is actually a law in Israel, like at this time, that if a prophet claims to have a predictive prophecy, like, there will be fire from heaven that's going to burn up this thing. Like, if he says that and it doesn't come true, that the elders of the city and the, the ruling people have every right to execute that guy because he's a false prophet. There's big rules about keeping, uh, you know, don't be claiming that you're coming from God if you're not coming from God. And so that's a, that's a big deal. So for someone like Elijah, man, and all the prophets are getting killed off, and he's like, yes, <laughs> God showed up. There's power in the name. And then something else happens on this mountaintop. And it's kind of hard for us in our, our Christian and modern minds to conceive, but Elijah rounds up the 450 prophets of Baal, and he has them, he has them killed. Now, that doesn't seem like a very nice thing to do, but remember, it's illegal to do what they're doing. It's a crime. It's a, it's a capital crime to, to claim to be a prophet of God or any God, especially a false God. And so he's just kind of playing his role as sheriff here, and he has them executed, and that's what goes down. Now, for Elijah, as a prophet, life is good. I'm sitting on top of the mountain, but chapter 9 the bottom falls. 19, sorry. Chapter 19, the bottom falls out. And it's that moment where he's sitting at the top going, what am I doing here? Now, everything just happened. That wasn't my power. That was God's power. And now, like, is God going to still be there for me? Because I have kicked the hornet's nest. And it's not going to be pretty. Look at chapter 19, starting at verse 1. So Ahab that's the king. He goes home and he tells Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with a sword. And so Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah and says, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. What's she saying? I'm coming at you. Now I'm mad at Ahab here. He's the king of Israel and he has just seen the God of the Israelites show up and do something amazing. Now, what he should have gone, done is go home and say, look, honey, we need to talk about our religion. Like, I'm pretty sure we're on the wrong side of the fence here. Like, he really should have manned up and gone and be a leader of his home, but that's not what he does. Instead, he goes home and says, look, Jezebel, you're not gonna believe what Elijah did. He went and killed all the prophets of your God, and she's mad, and she sends a message, and, and as a summary of her message is, Elijah, I will cut you. <laughs> I'm coming at you. And you, let's see what happens next. Verse three. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. Suddenly, this mountaintop experience takes a big nosedive. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, I told you he was a wilderness man, and he came to a broom bush, and he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. We get two prayers from Elijah in this passage. The first one, he's calling down fire from heaven. The second one, he's saying, I wish I was dead. That's how quickly the roller coaster happens. What happened to the guy who just took on 450 prophets of Baal? 
What's happened to the guy who had heard the voice of God coming to him? What happened? The bottom falls out. It's a roller coaster. Guys, if you've ever been here, I want you to know that it happens to the best of them. It's just a natural process because we don't have the power to do it all within ourselves. And sometimes we run out of energy. And so he, he runs off and, and I got a question. Do you, remember, do you remember where he sat down? Did you catch that? Under a broom bush. What the heck is a broom bush? You ever, anybody plant broom bushes in this, this spring? Nope, you didn't. What is a broom bush? Uh, I learned recently that in the wilderness of this area surrounding the place where Elijah lives, there's, there's three prominent trees in this area. And all throughout the Old Testament, the three trees actually set up a, a, uh, the scene. And each tree kind of provides different things for the environment that they live in. The broom bush is a very unique tree. And anytime you read about a broom bush in the Bible, I want you to picture this. I'm gonna show you a picture here. So this area is an area, very, this is a, a modern picture. I think it was taken in 2013 or so. And uh, this is an area very similar to the area that uh, Elijah probably retreated to and he's hiding. Um, see any trees in this area? Not any trees. Uh, it's hot, it's dry, it's desolate. You're a long way from everywhere. I, I want you to look at this next picture. Look at this. Right there, see that? That is a broom bush. Now, with the contrast of our screen, it's not super sharp. But can you see that it provides tons and tons of shade? Nah. This is where Elijah runs in his fear and his panic. Uh, travelers exhausted from a long journey with nowhere else to go would often just kind of curl up underneath the shade of a broom tree like this. And anytime you read uh, about a story who's, from someone who's just running in the wilderness, you'll often find that they have taken refuge under a broom tree. This is also um, known as a, a rotom tree or a rotom bush, and there's not much there. It has become a metaphor for hopelessness. If you say, man, I'm under the broom tree, I'm under the broom bush, it's just like, I got nothing. I'm out of water, I'm out of resources, I'm out of shelter, I'm just curled up in this little six-foot-long shade just to make it until the sun hits high noon and there's nothing left for me to hide under. And this is where we find Elijah, even in all of his triumph and all of his victory and taking on these 450 prophets of Baal and approaching the mighty king Ahab who's been taking out all his buddies. He's curled up under a broom bush and he says, I wish I was dead. Isn't it cool that when we read the story of God in the Bible, he shows up in such a real way. And this is what I mean by that. You read about these giants of history, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, and when we study them in school, like you're only, you're like you're in your 30s before you realize these guys weren't like in this pantheon of gods who never did any wrong. Like these guys were real and made mistakes because when we, when we memorialize somebody, we only memorialize the good parts. You ever been to uh, the funeral of a bad person? <laughs> Still great. He was great, man. He just... He did really good at avoiding people. He was the best at that. And just, he, yeah, he was the best at never giving encouraging words. Like he just always did that the best. Because we have a hard time remembering the negative parts of people's lives. But I love that when the people of God's story are memorialized in scripture, we get the highs and the lows. And we find Elijah, this guy's curled up under a broom bush and he's given up. And actually that gives me some comfort because I've been under the broom bush. And I thought, man, am I alone? And I want you to know that if you've been under the broom bush, you're not alone. So many good and godly and faithful people have found themselves there. And Elijah finds himself there in the wilderness. Now God begins to provide for him. Uh, after some time there, God, it says that God provided food for him and rest for him. And then God shows up to him in another voice. And he says, here, listen, you want to give up? Okay, well, no, don't give up yet. Uh, 
he says, I, I want you to go uh, to this place called Mount Horeb. It's like 40 miles journey, 40 days journey from where he was. Uh, you might know it better as Mount Sinai. It's considered a very holy place. This is where uh, uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments. And so for someone like Elijah, this would be a great refuge. I'm gonna go to this holy place where I know God has been. And he goes there, he takes the long journey, and is alone by himself. He's left his servant behind who was kind of helping him travel. And he goes and he moves into this cave at Mount Horeb. And he's just living there. And I don't know how long he was there. I'm guessing he smelled fantastic. And one day, while he's hanging out in this cave, God comes to him again. This is where we pick up his story. This is in chapter 19 again, starting in verse 9. It says, The word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And this is a loaded question. And, and Elijah's answer is important. Elijah says, Well, I've been very zealous for God. For the Lord Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, I'm scared. I'm hiding. They're trying to kill me. And that's a fair answer. That's what he's doing there. And I, I picture God maybe kind of putting his hand on his hip going, hmm, okay, fair enough. And then this cool thing happens. God, God wants to teach him a lesson. So he says in verse 11, all right, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard the whisper, he pulled his cloak over his head and his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. God shows his power to Elijah. Now it says that the Lord was not in the earthquake and he wasn't in the wind and he wasn't in the fire. God provided that. He was totally in it, but that was not the part of him that he needed Elijah to see. You know, you can tell real authority when a person doesn't have to scream to get people's attention. I've worked with teenagers for like the last 20 years and I, I, I dean a week of summer camp and I have watched volunteers try to lead teenagers by screaming at them. Uh, I'm gonna tell you, parents, we know this. If you've got to the point where you are yelling, you've lost control. <laughs> you are not in control of the situation. You're just trying to hang on with dear life. But when you find someone who by simply speaking in a soft voice can bring the room to an absolute silence, people are listening. And though God can show up in fire and lightning and earthquakes and thunder, the way God chooses to lead most often is through his gentle voice. We pray for stuff all the time. And we're like, God, change my job, fix my marriage, show up and fix this nation, fix our economy. He's like, stop telling me what to do. Will you shut up and listen for my voice? Let me tell you what to do. Let me guide you. Stop telling me what to do. I could do any of that if I wanted to, but obviously I don't want to, or I would have done it by now. Would you shut up and listen? And this is what God tells Elijah. I think it's what he's telling us. Shh. God's talking. And then a voice comes back to Elijah. I'm going to paraphrase it because it basically the same scene happens over again. But in verse 13, if you want to follow along, he just says, a voice came to him and said, so Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah comes back and says, I told you what I'm doing here. I did everything right and no one's listening. Now they're trying to kill me. 
And so God responds. He says, okay, all right, listen. Let's look at verse 15. The Lord says to him, now go back to the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. We'll get into all those names in just a second. Don't get hung up in it. Go out. I want you to kind of appoint these people. Tell them that I've got a plan for them. Verse 17, he says, this is what's going to happen. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, I know we got to unpack that. That's like ancient names and what's going on. This is what God could have come to Elijah and saying, Elijah, that stuff back there with the fire, did you think that was you? What do you mean you've done everything? You've been zealous. No, I gave you power. I did all that. Now stop whining. But that's not what he says. Instead, he comes in and says, listen, I know, I know you're scared. I know, you don't understand. But I took care of you back then and I'm also gonna take care of you from here moving forward. And I've got some plans. And so he names some people, this Hezael and Jehu. He says, listen, Ahab's time is over. And you as my prophet, I want you to go tell these other people, these guys are in the lineage of the kings and they are the rightful heirs to the throne. And he goes to them and says, listen, I want you to tell them that God is done with Ahab as king and now they're king. And these guys are gonna take care of Ahab. They're gonna raise up an army. They're gonna go take care of everything. Don't you worry about Ahab anymore. You're gonna be fine. And if you thought that you had to carry the weight from here on out, don't worry. There's a guy named Elisha. Sure, he's Elijah. The new guy's gonna be Elisha. I want you to go find Elisha. His story's incredible. Spoiler alert. Elisha becomes even more powerful than Elijah. It's incredible what happens through the life of Elijah. He said, but I want you to know, you don't have to carry this burden forever. I've already got your successor lined up. I just need you to go disciple him and train him. That's what I need you to do. You have done your part. You have carried the heavy load. And I know this has been hard, but I've got it from here. He goes to Elijah and he says, what are you doing here? And there's these moments in our life when you hear, what are you doing here? And we want to say, we want to tell God how we got here. Well, things went bad and this happened and my marriage fell apart or I got involved in this group or I started doing these drugs or I had this issue in my job or we ran out of money and this is how I got here. This is, and God's like, whoa, 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 I know how you got here. But what are you doing while you're here? What are you doing here? We have the tendency to sit in the valley and throw ourselves a pity party. And that's part of the healing process. That's Okay. If you dealt with anxiety or depression or you have severe worrying in your life, I want to let you know there's these moments where we hit the valley and that's okay. And the best thing I could do for you, man, anxiety and depression has been a huge part of my story. I've spent time in counseling for it and I've, I've spent years working on the tools to figure out how I can get through these hard times because I've had some mountaintop experiences followed directly by broom tree moments. But we can't do like Elijah did and retreat and try to deal with it on our own. God's given us this, this community, the church, and brothers and sisters is what we're called, to come together and stand beside one another. And my guess is you've been there and you can help somebody else. Don't go at it alone. But while we're in this moment, God wants to know, so what are you doing here? I know what got you here, but what are you gonna do from here on out? Where are you gonna lean for comfort and strength and hope? Where are you gonna go with this? Are you just gonna sit here and give yourself a pity party? Are you gonna turn in Tune in to what I'm doing. Hear my voice and then find your place in my plan. God doesn't just give Elijah a renewed sense of purpose. He also assures Elijah that the future doesn't rest on his shoulders. I've got this. 
So many lessons from the wild in this story, but I want to kind of just, just as we wrap up, hone into just one. And I really think that we've only scratched the surface when it comes to Elijah's story and what we can learn from him. But here's something to chew on, and this is it. You don't have to carry the weight of the valley alone. God is there in his power. God is there in his whispers. And through the church and through Jesus, he's given us even more restorative tools to go to. You don't have to carry the weight of the broom tree by yourself. What are you doing here? And where are you going to go from here? God has got it from here. And he's already got his plans laid out. And he won't give you more than you can bear. I want to fast forward to the New Testament. We could go on and on in Elijah's story, but I just want to kind of land us in a spot right here, okay? Uh, if you've got a Bible and you want to flip to 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is an apostle of Jesus, and he's spent a lot of time on the mountain and in the valley. And this is what he says. It's kind of a long passage, so just kind of tune in. He says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But be alert and of sober mind for your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so resist him and stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. We never promised that there won't be valleys and broom tree moments. Everyone's going through this. But look at verse 10. But the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That was 1 Peter 5, 9 through 11. Write it down. Unpack it on your own time. Make sure that you internalize this promise from God. The roller coaster is going to come, but you are not alone. Let's look at another one if you just need one for your life to put on a post-it note in your office. This is Philippians 4, 5 through 7. I'm just going to pick up the very last section of verse 5. It says, the Lord is near. Now, that right there is just a great promise. The Lord is near, so don't be anxious about anything. But what should I do? What should I do? This is what you should do. But in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I say this all the time. The more that we can find the things we are thankful for, the more we can realize where God is working in our lives. And that will pull us out of any depression, any anxiety. And then this is the promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all of our own understanding, that peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He sets up century right in front of your mind, right in front of your heart. I'm gonna take care of you. You don't have to carry the moments of the valley on your own. Elijah ends up being one of the biggest stories of faith throughout the entire Bible. So big, in fact, that when Jesus hits the scene and he starts doing all these amazing miracles and he's like healing people and raising people from the dead and crazy stuff's happening, you know what the people who are seeing him, you know what they think? They're like, man, this guy's gotta be a resurrected version of Elijah. That's how big Elijah's story gets. That when they see Jesus, the only thing they can pair it to is Elijah. And that's what Elijah's story became. And what's cool is that Elijah is the same guy who ended up underneath the broom bush. You don't have to be Superman, superwoman, superhuman. You just need to tune in and listen for the voice of God in your life through the people that you're in community with. And if you're not in community, get in community through the words of God, through the Bible. And I've experienced this, that even in the silent moments where you just go sit in front of a pine tree and be as quiet as you can, God's spirit will come and nurture your soul. He's called the comforter. 
And you'll start to find clarity, sometimes even answers. But only when we shh. Listen for God in the whisper and realize that we don't have to carry it on our own. And so let me ask you what God asked Elijah. What are you doing here? Like what brought you to this moment this morning? We're in church. You came here on some level because you were like, okay, what's happening with God in my life? <laughs> maybe you're here for the very first time and it's just because your friend keeps inviting you. You're like, if I come one time, maybe they will leave me the heck alone at work because I came, but guess what? You're here. I'm so happy to have you. We all are. Or maybe you've been searching God for a long time and you come to church because you're like, I'm just trying to find some grounding. But the question is, why are you here? Not what got you here. Not what's all the things that piled up in your life to make this roller coaster. But while you're here, what are you going to do from this point forward? Where are you going to look for hope and strength and faith? The God of the mountaintop is also the God of the valley. He's the God of the broom tree. And he's the God, God of your roller coaster ride. And that's this week's lesson from the wild. I'd love to pray for our group this morning. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your provision, for the ability that you've given us to just move forward after we hit broom tree moments. You're so good. Help us to find faith and hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.